cars may not have keyboards and login screens, but they're crammed full of computers. These computers are responsible for an increasing number of critical functions in the car. They're even autonomous vehicles that require no human supervision. Because cars now run complicated software and contain many digital interfaces, automotive cybersecurity has become an increasingly important topic. In this show, special guests Robert Leal and Matt Rogers discuss just how embedded digital components are into modern cars, what cybersecurity threats exist, and why it's important for researchers to continue hacking cars. Robert Leal is an automotive cybersecurity expert with over 10 years of automotive cybersecurity experience. Robert has taught automotive hacking hands-on course for the past six years at Black Hat, the world's largest cybersecurity conference. Robert also co-founded the Car Hacking Village in 2015, which runs at DEF CON, CypherCon, ThoughtCon, Hack in the Box, Hardware.io, GERCon, and other prestigious hacking conferences throughout the world. Robert is president of Canbus Hack at canbushack.com, where he and his team work to document vehicle communications. Robert has been involved in numerous vehicle electronics red teams for vehicle OEMs and tier ones. Matt Rogers is a security researcher and a PhD student at the University of Oxford, working on the cybersecurity of fleet assets. Matt, Robert, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks for having us. Great. So I thought I would start with a question that helps set the table around cybersecurity a bit. And in cybersecurity, we always talk about these threat models. So maybe we can start, Matt, with uh, what is a threat model? Yeah. So a threat model is really what you are concerned about in terms of who is going to attack you. So when you're trying to consider what you need to be secure from, you have to consider what kind of actor and what resources they might have where they'd actually come after you. So some examples would be you know, a physical threat model. Maybe you're worried about somebody coming in, getting past your physical security, plugging something into your car. Maybe you're worried about some sort of remote attack vector where they're like sending some signals and hacking your car from a distance or you know, any number of other things. But it's really just how they get there and sort of how you build your security so you know what you actually care about defending. Yeah, Robert, you've participated in a dizzying number of uh, red teams for automotive. What are some of the common threat models for for automotive um, assets? Well, the most, I think the most common is they're adding a lot of telemetry or cellular interfaces into vehicles. And so that seems to be the most insecure con- conceptually um, uh, application or hardware inside of the vehicle. So they're trying their best to make sure that it's as secure as possible and that the uh, systems aren't you know, easily susceptible to hackers attacking from really anywhere on the internet. So that's probably their number one. Yeah, because the reach, I guess, is so uh, devastating if you're able to hit an entire fleet or an entire model year of cars based on uh, internet access. So um, I guess, why don't people think about physical access as well? You know, like someone who has privileged access, like a maintainer of a car or somebody who's walking around in in a parking lot? Or or do you also think about those things? Oh, you absolutely think about them. Um, it's, It's something that's been going on for a long time, right? Vehicle theft is a very real challenge that the manufacturers are dealing with, specifically related to a lot of the um, relay attacks that are happening currently. Um, they're considering it. But for them, you know, if you think about their perspective, if somebody steals a car, 
do you have insurance, right? So it's it's bad, but it doesn't it doesn't change or affect their stock price. But if you attack all of their vehicles, then then they probably have some answering to do to their executives. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean the economic drivers are probably why a lot of cybersecurity research and um, improvements get done, right? You mentioned relay attacks. Could you um, go into those a little bit? So a relay attack is is I wouldn't say relatively simple, but it's the probably the most common um, theft model that we have today, where vehicle keys you put in your pocket and then you walk up to your car, you approach your car and you unlock the door. And the only thing that's really securing that key is just the fact that you have to be close to the, the key fob has to be close to the door. And as long as it's close, um, it works. If it's outside of the range of the vehicle, then it doesn't work anymore. But uh, let's say you can extend the range of your key fob. How right? nice and, of you. Yeah, not nice. And um, an attacker can do that um, with kind of off-the-shelf devices that you can buy on Alibaba today. And they can extend the range of the vehicle's key. So if you, they can find out where your key is located, typically you hang it from a hook. A lot of people near the door, front door, they'll just wave an antenna close to the door and another antenna close to the vehicle and extend the range of your key fob and allowing them access to your car, opening the doors, and potentially even starting the vehicle and driving it away. I saw an interesting talk by, I think it was um, Sammy Kamkar about getting around some of the mitigations for this. Uh, I, I think some manufacturers had uh, used uh, rolling keys or some sort of sequential uh, keys. And, and he was like, yeah, that's great, except I'll just you know, keep the one that you sent. <laughs> yeah. So relay that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the relay attack uh, is similar to that, but his, I think Sammy's uh, attack was a little bit more on the unlock and lock front only with right. like single ended, like one, one way directional unlock and lock. But yeah, he had something very similar. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's an interesting, I think, starting point is, okay, what are the threat models? So sure, there are some sort of closer physical proximity ones, uh, but the ones that we think about a lot are the really devastating kind of massively scalable attacks where you've got cars that are increasingly getting connected to the internet or global networks. And we're really concerned about a, a nefarious actor being able to use those global networks to get access to large numbers of vehicles and do a lot of damage. Um, so that's, I think, a really good... Uh, basis for the threat model. Maybe let's dig into um, how cars come together and what sorts of components are on these things. So uh, Matt, I know a lot of your research and the things that you do are focused around operational technology and fleet assets. And you know we've talked uh, a lot on this show about how these fleet assets have started to accrue digital components because it just makes so much economic sense. You can provide kind of like more flexible, more featureful, more reliable um, things by making analog analog uh, components digital. What are some of the components that you might find on a car? I, I mean, frankly, at this point, almost everything is digitized. So you're, you're, you might have an electronic brake controller and an electronic engine control module that's telling your engine what to do. You might have those, you know, fancier cars, or I guess most of them these days, will have like front-end cameras that will automatically kind of report back, hey, there's somebody in front of you, please stop immediately. All of that will be connected to the bus. And the reason for that is because everything is just cheaper, it's more convenient, and you reduce a lot of the weight of the cabling by just having this one centralized bus running through everything. So it, it, it just makes 
too much uh, sense economically to to do anything else. And Robert, I mean, you've um, literally been under the hood of many, 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 many cars and uh, have had the opportunity of decomposing these systems to see what they're, uh, how they're architected and how they come together. Can you give us a sense of what are some of the common ways that these digital components work together to make the car um, operate? Well, it's this is an ever, ever changing uh, landscape. Um, I would say, you know, when I was first starting, they were just trying to figure it out. Um, you know how how there may have been only one or two, maybe three controllers, electronic controllers in a vehicle. Maybe one for the engine, one for the transmission, maybe, and one for the body controllers for lights and door locks and features like that. And then they started expanding because they started adding radios had to had to be connected to the vehicle network so that they could uh, see the information from the network from the network to see what the speed of the vehicle was so they can increase and decrease the volume so they started adding features customers started demanding more features um all of a sudden we wanted our headlights to turn on and off automatically and if we leave the key on to shut it down just a lot of things like that they were able to what were like discrete hardware components now they've convert them to software, basically. And what that has also allowed them to do is make the software or the functions that are running live in different controllers, depending on, you know, they, they want to scale the size of a vehicle. Maybe they want to make a, a truck electronic platform and a car's electronic platform the same so they can save some costs. Um, in order to do that, you know, they might have 10 more controllers in a truck than maybe the vehicle, the, the, the basic vehicle. And because of that, they might want to move a function from one controller to another because it's just not on that other uh, vehicle, that particular controller isn't on the vehicle. So they've kind of even added another layer of, of, of being able to move functionality to different controllers. And the vehicle network or the bus um, is super important. It, it's part of that so they can you know, physically change the controllers that different software applications are running on from model to model or vehicle to vehicle if they needed to. Yeah. And I mean, these bus architectures are actually pretty old and have stood the test of time from a functionality perspective, right? Um, Matt, what are some of the um, common protocols that we see in consumer automotive and in um, kind of more uh, commercial automotive applications? So in, in commercial automotive, I mean, it's typically just a CAN bus, right? And it's was around in the 19, early 1980s by a company named Bosch. And since then, it's been updated a little bit. Um, CAN, CAN 2.0, CAN 2.0B. More recently, there's this thing called CAN-FD, which is just running a lot faster. So instead of you know, a, a blazing 250 kilobits per second, it might be running at four megabits per second, which is, you know, just four times faster than your modern fighter jet. So we're really blazing. Um, right. And then it kind of changes a little bit as you go into more industrial systems, uh, mostly in the form of standardization. So it's the same wires, physical air, everything in terms of the bits that are being sent is pretty much the same, but you start adding like application layers. You add, start adding more explicit networking between devices when you get stuff like uh, J1939 in uh, like trucks, and then some like more serious ground vehicles or NAMIA 2000 when you get to like naval systems. Yeah, Robert, uh, tell us a little bit. I mean, I know CAN is just such an important bus protocol in uh, many industrial settings, but uh, especially in cars. Can you tell us a little bit about 
how it works, what problems it solves, and um, you know, just general architectural principles. Well, how much time do you have? No, <laughs> I could go very in depth, so I'll try to rein it in a little bit. Well, the, the idea, yeah, exactly. There are a lot of books on it. That's a good point. Um, but the, the challenge that it solves, or the kind of the problems that it solved, was a somewhat real time, really small packets of information. Um, the maximum size of a standard CAN frame, CAN, what's called a classic CAN, which is what you'll see mostly in a lot of vehicles today, is eight bytes. So. It's it's not fast, not blazing speed, 250, 500 megab- or kilobits per second, not even megabits, you know, kilobits per second. But they're really short messages, very, very tiny. And the idea is, is if you need to communicate what the state of a door switch is, you just need a single bit to describe that. Or if you need to describe like the uh, ambient air temperature, maybe you only need eight bits. And you can do that every one, once a second. And it's not going to take up a lot of bandwidth. And because it's a bus topology, you can send it out to one controller and all of the other controllers that want to have access to that information can just listen. And then you don't, the, the transmitter of the, of, the, of the frame doesn't really need to know if anybody's listening to that particular information. It just needs to know that it has to send it. And then other controllers can be added or removed without having to reconfigure the network at all. So it, it makes for it a really robust um, and easy to add and remove components kind of uh, style network. Whereas you, you compare and contrast that to maybe an ethernet network, as you add components, you need to route traffic through them in order for it to get to the recipient. Whereas on a bus, you just tap into the wires and you're there and you want to send something, you just send something. It's, it's relatively simple. Yeah, and from a physical perspective, it's really cheap to make a CAN bus, right? It's like yes. three wired. I mean, you got a low, a high, and a ground. Yeah, yeah, you don't even need right? the ground. I mean, you they don't, don't use the it. ground. Yeah. And, and, um, and, but it's actually the way it's designed at a protocol level, it's extremely robust, well, mm-hmm. relatively speaking, pretty robust against mm-hmm. electromagnetic interference, and right. it's trusted for like safety critical systems. Um, so so that's, that all is great, right? But there are some downsides to CAN, right, Matt? Yeah, you, you noticed that when he said it was really easy to connect to, the main thing was you can just kind of talk, uh, which of course means, right, that if all of these systems are trusting each other, and you know, we've, I think we've said this a million times, right, like if you send anything on the bus, then everything else will listen, and it's designed that way. So if you're an attacker, it's really easy to send something, and there isn't really a good system for proving who you are. Uh, and on top of that, Anybody can send anything because there's no bus controller. There's nobody saying, okay, now you speak, now you speak, now you speak. Everybody just talks at the same time. And Josh, to your point, there's a really clever arbitration process that makes it so that everybody can speak really efficiently without any crazy back off periods. You don't have any of the cost of something like Ethernet, which is great for getting messages across the bus so efficiently, but terrible in terms of you know forcing people to comply to like strict time periods or limiting the functionality of what something can do. But you kind of need it to be that way because you're upgrading what the automobile can do so consistently from year to year. Right. And it, it just goes back to threat models, right? Like if, if in back in the 1980s, no one was ever thinking like, well, of course, all the participants on the bus are going to be trusted. Like this is a closed system. It's not connected to the internet. There's no way for somebody to do anything nefarious on this. So you have sort of this eggshell security or this walled garden, then if that's your assumption, the the protocol works great, right? And there, there are no issues. But, um, you know, as many people have written and Robert, as you've um, taught many students, uh, there are a lot of ways of communicating on vehicle CAN buses and, um, 
doing things like security research and penetration testing, but also performance tuning and kind of aftermarket modding of your vehicle. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how someone could get started exploring this wild world of communicating with your vehicle? Well, you know, get the book. The Car Hacker's hand got, Handbook is uh, written by Craig Smith. I know he's working on an update right now. Um, it's currently in version two, but he's working on an update to it that will um, let you just sort of, it takes you kind of quickly but efficiently through some examples of how to get started, what tools to start using, what um, hardware exists, how to connect to the network. You know, a lot of those fundamental questions that I get all the time, I always refer to people, say, check out the book. Um, our website, canbushack.com, we had a blog. We had to, we just updated our website, so we're going to be putting our blog back on it too. So I'll recommend that again. Um, so, you know, a lot of the fundamental questions, a little bit more in depth than, than maybe the book is sort of like unique functions. A lot of, a lot of CAN bus networks have um, something called power management that's built into it. And it's another really important part of uh, working with CAN bus, especially if you're working with a controller, maybe not working with a whole vehicle, but maybe with a controller on a desk Itself. So you just have a benchtop controller that you want to plug into, maybe something off of eBay, you just want to plug in. One of the big challenges that we see, and we have a lot of people call us about, is like, hey, how do you like, like get, keep this thing awake all the time? And, you know, it doesn't have the rest of the vehicle. So normally the vehicle network actually ma makes the device stay awake. And at some point, so there's a lot of, a lot of like network management things that help keep the, keep the device awake. Awesome. And what are some kind of interesting projects that people could do on a vehicle? If that, you know, of course, this is your own vehicle that you have permission to be doing uh, yeah. these these sorts of things on. But what are some projects that uh, are fun and interesting that, that you could do on a Honda Civic? Uh, well, that's it's funny you may, mentioned Honda Civic. It was actually the first vehicle that I started, you know, hacking. Um, it's a really um, it doesn't really matter what the vehicle is. What I like to do is just take something fun, right? Take a fun application. Maybe you want to read some parameter that you don't normally get displayed on the vehicle and you want to just show it on your laptop or your screen. Or maybe you want to tie two functions together that aren't normally tied together. Maybe when you hit the brake, the horn honks or something silly like that. I don't know. You can do that. But the, the challenge here is you have to figure out when you connect to a vehicle network, there isn't, unfortunately, there isn't a very good playbook or rule book that says here here's what these what this data means um and because of that that's actually one of our big challenges and what canvas hack does is it helps demystify a lot of that data so it's the reverse engineering problem so connecting to the vehicle and listen you want to figure out what the brake how the what the brake message is hit the brake hit it a lot of times and then eventually you'll find the parameter that's changing inside of the data stream that's changing every time you hit the brake and then you just document it Right. Every time this bit goes high, turns to a one, the brake is being pressed. And then you got to find controls. Um, hit the horn or hit the unlock button on your key fob or something like that. And just do something really kind of benign and silly, but that's a lot of fun. You know, to show your friends. It's like this when you hit the brake, you're not supposed to the horn's not supposed to honk. Or when you when you lock the doors, the horn's not supposed to, you know, honk or something something silly like that. Just get it real people real interested. I also like to change, like turn the headlights on and off. It's a really simple one, you know, that uh, people can have fun with. Just turning the headlight state. So you start tying different functions together. It can get you real interested real quick, and then it just snowballs from there. And Matt, you've spent a lot of time um, reverse engineering all kinds of protocols, including CAN uh, and some other ones that are on aircraft and industrial assets and things. 
what are some of the techniques? So, so, you know, Robert uh, went through a really good explanation of, I think how you do the equivalent of like dynamic analysis on, 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 on these, on these systems where you're, you're manipulating the environment and, and hitting controls and observing what the, uh, what the wire protocols look like. Uh, are there other ways of augmenting that analysis to try to get, um, get a, get a protocol reverse engineered? Uh, yeah. So I, I, there's probably three ways other than that, where, one, you can do a lot of analysis just on all of the bits you're collecting to try and identify basically what fields are changing over time. And then based off that, kind of do a bunch of math and try to figure out, okay, I think this is probably engine speed. Maybe you can speed up that dynamic analysis a bit, though it may, might be more trouble than it's worth. But Yeah, you have to read that, uh, Brent Stone's PhD thesis, right? Yeah, if you read Brent Stone's PhD thesis, uh, so just, you know, read a, read a thesis, no worries, easy, easy peasy. Uh, you'll certainly read, be read more than most PhD theses. Uh, so, you know, that's option one. Option two is you can do a bunch of static analysis. So, should you be so lucky or should you be some unfortunate soul, soul, you can decide to start doing a bunch of static reverse engineering of the firmware that exists in these, like, in these computers and then trying to figure out what messages they're sending based off of a bunch of analysis of the firmware, which if you're just a hobbyist and just trying to turn your headlights on might be a bit overkill uh, unless you're a reverse engineering guru, uh, just because static analysis is by definition incredibly time consuming. Um, and kind of the last one is you're really hoping that somebody just has all the information for you and you just have to write some terrible parsers. So if you're an industrial vehicle, a lot of trucks do it. If you're running like a diesel engine, there's probably J1939 as a protocol option, which means that there's a ton of resources online to tell you what messages already do and they're standardized across vehicles. So all you've got to do is look up some messages. There's a ton of attack papers online. So if you want to get your engine to start making some funny noises, just look those up and send the messages in the paper. You know, some risks involved with doing that on your own vehicle, but if it's on a test bed, you know, go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and the same is true for anything really other than automobiles. Uh, automobiles are really the worst in terms of getting this information because so many of the messages are proprietary. Because your your Ford, your Honda, your Supers, whatever, they all do whatever they want across the bus. There's no real standardization. Um, mm-hmm. When you get to industrial things like JN39, it's better, but uh, it's, it can be a bit of a nightmare to, to figure this out without doing some sort of dynamic analysis. Yeah, Robert, I mean, you've worked a lot with OEMs. Um, yep. why, why does this dichotomy exist? Why are OEM, uh, you know, like consumer automobiles um, proprietary with their protocols where, you know, a lot of industrial settings have standardized around uh, J1939? Well, I mean, that's a really complicated and multi-layered question. Um, So one of the big challenges is they, they like to consider this as proprietary for a couple of reasons. One, if their competitors do get a hold of it, it's much easier for them to validate different functions that they might be doing and see how their vehicle is acting like they can this is actually a whole this is actually how i got into this whole um like field was uh, a lot of the oems will do something called competitive analysis where they acquire a different a competitive vehicle 
install a bunch of systems, uh, measurement equipment, and and test it and drive it around and see. And there's all, there's a benchmarking actually an application that they use for benchmarking uh, individual vehicles. They'll drive these vehicles around, benchmark it, and then they'll drive their vehicle around and benchmark it. And then they'll see how they compare to what is potentially considered, at least by the people who are buying it, the best vehicle in, in any particular segment. And with access to the CAN network pro, uh, parameters, it's much easier for them to do that. And that's really how, how I got started by, with reverse engineering. And this was in 2005. It was helping these companies you know, reverse engineer so that they can um, see what what their competitors' systems are doing and benchmark much easier. And it's just much easier to install a uh, data acquisition device onto the CAN bus as opposed to actually in- instrumenting wheel speed sensors and, and, and other things. It's just almost impossible in some of those cases. So that's, that's the number one reason. Number two is they just don't have their stuff together. You know what I mean? <laughs> they, just, they really don't. I mean, I've talked to OEMs and they're, they're internally and they have a real big challenge just distributing this data internally, right? Updates and, and, you know, you have a lot of, you know, the best way to describe it is a lot of chefs changing the soup, the, the, the temperatures and the, the, the different ingredients in the soup all the time. And the, because of all these updates, there's really, they have central repositories and central people managing it, but not everybody is, it knows how to get the information. Maybe a guy in powertrain or propulsion systems is, is, used to getting it from one person, but that person gets it from another person. There's always these weird networks of distribution internally. And so it's difficult for them to do it that way. And third is they don't really have any motivating factors, right? That with the commercial vehicles, the motiv- there's a huge motivating factor that they standardize it because one day, one person might order an Allison transmission, the next person wants a ZF transmission. So because these are swapping engines and transmissions and other components, they need to have some sort of... Uh, standard way for these devices to communicate. It's highly inefficient as well. I mean, J1939 is the most, uh, sorry if you're on the steering committee, it's the most garbage protocol for CAN bus (laughs) that exists. It's so inefficient. If you look at a message, you might have two bits of an eight byte message that are actually ever being used and it's being sent every 10 milliseconds or 20 milliseconds. It is very inefficient and it's running 250 kilobits per second. It's It's really, really bad. But they have to do it that way because that's the standardized protocol. And so if you want to get, if you want to be super efficient and super tight, you have to be, it's got to be a closed environment and closed ecosystem. So that's their main reason. That's not to say they couldn't make a more open like gateway that allows other, uh, you know, third party applications to interact with it. Um, and that's kind of where we, you know, we that's been the problem that Canvas Act has been solving for the past 10 years is exactly that. Like, how do we open these parameters up to the masses? Um, right now, it's really cool. There's actually a, um, a Kame AI has a, a their a, a database repository that they put on GitHub. That is what they call the Open DBC Challenge. DBC is the database for CAN bus. And it's a really cool um, open database. So they are opening it up. But that being said, it's all hand done and kind of, it's it's kind of hit or miss what you're going to get. And there's really no quality control on it. Um, our, our goal is to make it a little bit more quality control, do it ourselves in house, and then be the experts on the data because it's not enough to just look at it. You could look at a description, but what does that description really mean? How does it really work? Um, and how can I validate my system? And that's kind of where we help. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, can is obviously like a really important nervous system on a car, Mm -hmm. but it's not the only, um, only topology on there. Right. I mean, you've got, uh, other systems that communicate on other communications networks, mm-hmm. like your infotainment or your OnStar system. Yep. Um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the other systems that you've seen on recent vehicles that are starting to come up? Well, I mean, ethernet is happening on cars. Um, the last two vehicles that I've owned had what's a flavor of ethernet called automotive ethernet. Um, it's automotive ethernet has different flavor, you know, different, uh, speeds, 100 megabits to start. It's kind of the base. Um, it's a two-wire twisted pair, just like CAN bus, but it's not a bus. It's point-to-point. Um, there's a, a thousand, a thousand base T1 as well. That's that's also exists. It's the gigabit Ethernet standard that is also coming out and is out now um, in some vehicles. So we have Ethernet and and for fast. High speed data, but there's also low speed data. Like CAN bus is slow; it's very slow, but not as slow as LIN bus, which is the slowest of all of them. And it's a one wire protocol that lets for up to like essentially 19 kilobits per second. Um, but you know, if you need to turn a fan on, you don't need speed, right? If you need to press a button, you don't need speed. So there's a lot of applications that just need really low cost. Um, interfaces instead of just switch inputs. So they want to keep like that. So you have LIN bus, CAN bus, you know, um, another protocol called A2P, which is an auto video protocol for, for just really audio. Mostly it's like transferring audio data between controllers and things like that. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of different applications are flex ray, which is a big one that's happening in, in some vehicles as well. Um, so you just got a ton of different um, applications and tons of different networks. But Canvas, I would say, as far as the data and interacting, it's probably the 95% of almost everything that you really would want to get, um, except for maybe video and audio kind of data, that high bandwidth traffic. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would imagine a lot of the ubiquity of CAN is, number one, just inertia, like industrial inertia. Um, but also, I mean, the controllers at the electronics level for can are so cheap and dead simple and they don't require barely uh any processing power on like the microcontroller that you might attach to them whereas you know ethernet relatively speaking is is a bit more heavyweight right although now like you know all of these integrated circuits are costing pennies so given that the economic if you can get them (laughs) yeah (laughs) and and who knows what's going to happen with the suez canal blocked uh for (laughs) an indefinite period of time um Uh, but but do you see, I mean, just given that um, all of these integrated circuits have gotten so cheap, do you see the industry moving in a particular direction? Do you think that Ethernet is going to become more popular or is CAN around to stay? What are your, what are your so prognostications? So I can tell you that the, the advanced architectures that we've seen, have what they what they're tend to do is take away CAN bus as a backbone and maybe just replace it with Ethernet. So they have the high-speed data transmission. And then more of the edge nodes get the CAN bus interaction. So instead of having one or two or even six CAN buses on a network, they'll have 20 or 30 CAN buses because they're just going kind of point-to-point or, or small localized groups of CAN bus as opposed to large groups. And just sort of an anecdote, um, as far as costing is concerned, I, I was once working with an OEM, and they they told me, "Hey, we're going to we need to add 
like for our base model car, we need to add Bluetooth to this car because all of our customers, they want Bluetooth. So what does that mean? If we're going to add Bluetooth, well, that means we have to delete something else because of the cost. So they deleted cruise control from the car <laughs> so they can add Bluetooth. So that's kind of the, the economics of the situation. In order for them to like, it's a zero sum game for them. Like, like if they want to add anything, they got to they kind of remove other things. And so there's a lot of costs. I mean, if they can save a penny, that saves them millions, right? So it's amazing. It yeah. adds up real quick when you sell hundreds of thousands of things, you know. And so. it's not like behavioral economics pricing where you're just trying to price differentiate. This is actual just unit yeah. economics of yeah. manufacturing the car. Like the the profit yep. margins are so thin that the, thin. That, that actually matters. That's they're very thin. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, talking about uh, expensive components on a car, um, Matt. You know, uh, infotainment systems are uh, endless source of joy for security researchers. Um, what are what are some of the interesting things that you uh, that you can do with infotainment systems? Well, the the main thing on them is usually that there's some sort of cellular internet connection, and so it takes your threat model back to that internet, anybody on the internet or somebody close by who can attach the connection. And it really just makes it so that somebody can pivot through it. I mean, the, the classic Black Hat is uh, like the Charlie Miller Black Hat talk from like 2015, 2016, mm-hmm. I think, 2015. Um, who you know basically got on through the OnStar system and was able to pivot through the infotainment system to then trigger the brakes or I think it was like turn the steering wheel suddenly. They ended up in a ditch in the middle of Mississippi and had to get towed out and kindly refused to explain to their their savior how they ended up in that ditch, which was they hacked themselves and turned their own wheel so fast that they ended up in a ditch. But did he void the warranty is the real question. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think they asked. Uh, I'm sure if any Jeep mechanics might be looking at them a little funny <laughs> if they come in, but... Um, yeah, it, it's it just opens up a whole another attack vector for the system. Uh, so you know, you give and you take. Um, of course, like things like Bluetooth, uh, like Robert said, are sort of theoretically more vulnerable. But I think often with Bluetooth, you end up with less of a hacking concern in the immediate, but more of like a privacy concern, particularly with things like rental cars. The main example is always, oh, well, everybody connected via Bluetooth. That stuff never gets deleted, and so anybody who's connected via Bluetooth of the car before, that stuff is basically saved until somebody clears it and nobody clears it. And so you can get a bunch of information about people uh, whenever they connect their vehicles. So, I mean, one of the common cybersecurity threat actor tactics is pivoting, right? And so um, one of the common threat models is you think about an attack surface for initial access that might be something like an infotainment system. You know, you get in through the internet or there's some sort of wireless protocols that car manufacturers start integrating onto their systems and you figure out a vulnerability there and that you would maybe want to pivot onto the CAN bus. So you've got this idea that you can remotely access the really important um, central nervous systems on a vehicle, right? Um, you can imagine how that could go poorly. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, the Charlie Miller hack is um, perhaps a slightly irresponsible um, uh, testament to, <laughs> to how badly that can go. Um, what are some of the ways that security researchers are, um, are trying to defend autom- automobiles from uh, being susceptible to these sorts of attacks, Robert? So I think... 
they're you know they're just doing pen, you know standard penetration tests. They're they're validating that the systems are as advertised secure. Like we we did a test and that this has actually been um, already talked about by somebody else that was uh, in the lead of the team. So um, we did a test on um, a infotainment system, a telematics infotainment system. It had the cellular connectivity, and they assured us, "Hey, this is all encrypted. Here's the certificate. Here's a, here's a certificate. It's on the system. Everything's encrypted end to end, and really challenging you to get in. Absolutely, hundred percent encrypted. But we were able to pull off the certificates, and they're all in, you know, protected by you know this certificate and some some secret key. You know that that's protecting their certificate from even us from even looking at the private key. But we just ran a regular old password style cracker on the on the certificate and found that the password for the certificate was really 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 simple. Like it it was one of those. You know I hear it all the time. The crack happened so fast. I thought it didn't work like fast. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I pressed the button and like less, less, not enough time for me to move my mouse off of the button and it was done. And it was just one of those challenges. You're like, okay, so they're clearly using, if I, if I can get access certificate now, I, I have access to emulate a vehicle, not, I can't see what's going on. And I could see, I could potentially decrypt all the communication if I was able to be like a, a device in the middle for, for this um, vehicle. So that had some interesting cybersecurity for that particular vehicle. But now I can emulate this vehicle. And now as emulating this vehicle, I could connect to the backend system. And once I was in the backend system, are you saying there wasn't any vulnerabilities in that backend system? I'm pretty sure. Now, we, that was out of scope, so we didn't actually figure that out. But I'm just saying that at some point, you know, you get, you've given me the keys to the kingdom. Now I can actually, you know, install this certificate in my system and emulate the vehicle and its protocols to the backend system and potentially pivot my way through there, not just to the car. And now if I'm into the in their backend system, now potentially I have access to all of the vehicles, not just one. And so it was just because they had pretty poor password management on, you know, on a certificate. So even though they implemented everything on paper correctly, it's just a challenge, you know, just to, to, that's why they do these pen tests to make sure that the application and the implementation are aligned. Yeah, time after time, it's an implementation problem, yeah, right? And yeah. it just emphasizes why it's yeah. so important for security researchers to be allowed to do, to do, to be allowed to do these things, right? To like mm -hmm. reverse engineer protocols and and kick the literally kick the tires and figuratively yep. kick the tires on on these um on these cars, um, Matthew. What I mean, I know there's a lot of work. Maybe I would argue skewing too much towards uh, future. Um, kinds of operational technology protocols and ways of designing systems uh, with security from first principles. What are some of the ways that researchers are thinking about securing future systems? So most of them uh, kind of say, hey, what if we didn't use CAN 2.0, um, which is interesting. But a lot of it kind of comes down to this idea that every packet across a CAN bus is unauthenticated so let's just add a bunch of cryptography to the bus and there we go. If you have a key exchange mechanism between all of these computers, then, you know, an attacker would have to come in and basically figure out some way to communicate. Uh, there's problems with that, of course, being, you know, if you are an implant and somebody new to the bus, then sure. But if you somehow pivoted onto that trusted 
system, then maybe they already have access to the key and maybe it's just some API call that sends it and properly encrypts everything and validates it properly. So that's one way. And sort of the other way is, you know, either they design a new protocol entirely or a lot of people still stick to this, you know, um, security and layers kind of concept and just, okay, well, let's monitor all of the traffic on the bus. They're fairly regular systems. Let's see if we can find any deviations. Um, Though I will say a lot of the sort of important work is those remote attack vectors are the thing you're really scared about. You need to put a lot of security effort into making sure that those are the thing that you're secure against because if they can get to the CAN bus, there's a lot of damage you can do regardless. So it's more important to stop them from even getting onto the bus uh, as sort of the priority for security. But that is a little harder for security researchers to test. So usually they focus on the, we're going to add something to the bus (laughs) We're going to see what happens is the is the very common answer in academia. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned observability and kind of being able to do intrusion detection on, on systems. I mean, it's something we work at at, at Shift 5, but we generally focus on much more expensive assets than a consumer um, uh, autom- automobile. And one of the things that we found is, you know, to your point, Robert, like the margins on these systems are so razor thin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like, number one, there's a huge demand from consumers to be embedding sort of cybersecurity intrusion detection types of things onto their systems. Uh, and then number two, it doesn't seem like there's really any room uh, from an economics perspective for uh, manufacturers to be including any sort of intrusion detection systems. Do you think that we're just stuck forever not having the equivalent of like, you know, endpoint security on these systems? I don't. Um, I just think we'll have to delete Bluetooth, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know just delete it. You know, problem Best solved. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the truth is, is we have to, you know, they are making, I mean, I have seen implementations of IDSs and we have done some tests on them. In fact, I just submitted a paper um, on, on one of that, on something just recently. So we've done some IDS testing, but still the implementations are are, are, are poor, like the current implementation of uh, intrusion detection systems that, uh, that are looking to be released in the next two years or so uh, are, are not that good and... Um, and really, it, it's every – you can't have just a single node that's monitoring all of them. Every node needs to be in charge of monitoring every system. And I think if it's a software adder as opposed to a hardware adder, which is really what a lot of these intrusion detection systems are, it's probably a little bit easier uh, pill to swallow. And I think the costs are probably less. It's really now a monitoring, maybe a subscription model. And if you give your customers the choice where they have no choice right now, if you give your customers a choice, you know maybe they'll choose that option. Now, again, it goes back to what – we started in the very beginning. What's your threat model, right? Do you are you really concerned with you know um, uh, somebody a nefarious hacker attacking your vehicle? If you are, well, then you should definitely be adding these systems. We have aftermarket alarm systems right now because we're worried about our car being stolen. There's no reason you can't have an aftermarket you know IDS if you really wanted it. Um, it's just there's nobody offering that the the the, the you know you got to really inform the customer a lot of costs involved in that and so we don't see it yet and to implement it is really challenging but i don't think we're far away from it i i have seen actual ideas it production intent ideas that are are coming down the pike 
Yeah, that's so encouraging um, because ultimately, I think a lot of security researchers are left with a bit of nihilism around it and saying, look, like something really bad is going to have to happen before people are going to care and and pay attention to this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're finally in the ICS and SCADA world, uh, seeing real attention, getting paid to cybersecurity because time after time, there have been intrusions that could have caused really serious consequences, right? Like Oldsmar, Florida, a couple of weeks ago, there was some, some person that, uh, logged into a team viewer account and, um, like jacked up the level of lie in the drinking water, um, in Florida, you know, and th- thankfully no one got hurt cause they, they caught it, uh, uh, early, but, um, it's those kinds of incidents that where it's like, oh my God, that's not theoretical. Like someone actually tried to do this and you're filling in the imagination for people that they can see what the consequences are, mm-hmm. um, that, that, you know, finally people wake up and, and demand this sort of cybersecurity. So it's good to know that people are trying to solve this problem and get intrusion detection and, and more robust security measures onto vehicles. I just wanted to, to point out, you know, I have, uh, I, I have heard this nihilism before, but in the counter terms of, well, modern electronic control modules, modern uh, vehicle computers just have a trusted platform module attached to them. And that will just solve all the security problems, which is uh, <laughs> a, an, an ambitious take, uh, but, but is actually one I've heard a couple of times. So again, it comes down to implementation, yeah. it comes down to people doing something with it. But yeah, in theory, you could store some secure keys on a hardware chip and do something. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, look, why wouldn't we take cues from how IT cybersecurity ecosystems grew up, right? I mean, I think when we when we look at IT, it's very instructive. You know, we started in the 1960s with mainframe computers and no security and uh, Ethernet networks that aren't horribly dissimilar from can if you squint really hard like there's no there's no real authentication or security you know like arp spoofing still works in 2020 right um and uh, you know but what we did was we didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. we started solving cybersecurity problems we we built intrusion detection we built firewalls we built endpoint security products. And then, you know, we live in a really weird world now where we're sort of in this kind of global mainframe of, you know, you've got all these cloud computers and we figured out ways of building web application firewalls. So you've got like all these components that solve different parts of the cybersecurity puzzle. And to me, it seems like we're going to have to do something similar in the OT space. You know, you're going to have products that do hardening for, um, for the firmware and, and upgrades on components on the bus to make sure that you are only getting authorized software from the manufacturer. You'll have intrusion detection systems on, on buses to make sure that no one's, you know, uh, nefariously deleting packets off the bus or spoofing things and, and, and putting them, um, you know, you'll have modern cryptographic primitives implemented on all the different, um, you know, communications channels to make sure no one's man in the middle in you when, mm-hmm. when you're, when you're on your infotainment system. Uh, that's where I think it's probably going to end up having to go. Um, Robert, do you think that there are any kind of unique challenges to automotive cybersecurity that where the analogy does break down, where like IT cybersecurity is just not instructive and we're going to have to make it up on our own? No, I mean, I don't, I don't see that as too dissimilar. These, I actually came from an IT background. That's where I, that's where I lived before I got into automotive. And so it was, you know, at the time I moved from, you know, Ethernet and securing networks to 
to vehicles is a very simple transition. Um, and uh, things were a lot simpler in automotive at the time. You know, this was 2005 and there wasn't, they weren't connecting the vehicles to the internet. But as soon as they started doing that, they started to realize, hey, this is a potential um, challenge. So we start to, not just IDSs that we, we added, but, you know, we had the concept of firewalls. Well, they're adding these things they call secure gateways now. So they're actually um, segmenting off the, telemetry or telematics devices and putting them on their own network, a dirty side of the network. And they're putting a gateway that should help protect, should, you know, um, help protect the other components, um, filtering some of the data, just like a, just like a modern firewall might do. Um, so they are considering some of these things are taking they're, they're maybe changing the terminology to fit more of the automotive um, space. Um, but for the most part, it's the same concept. You know, you have data that could potentially be malicious. Uh, let's, let's filter it. Let's make sure it's safe before we put it and send it to this other device here. If it is, cool. And they're using modern cryptography and, 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 and certificates like TLS style um, encryption, or at least initial authentication, to to open up the ports, if you will, to allow traffic to throw uh, to flow uh, correctly. So that's um, a good. The problem is again implementation. It's always implementation, and so one of the challenges is they are putting this network on the same network that the OBD2 connector is on, and the OBD2 connector is there to do like reflashes and for for other things. And so if you can emulate an, an authentic OBD2 device, then you can still get through the system. And that's actually not that challenging to do. Um, and so there are some implementation challenges that they're still working on. And I, and to the, to the point where we don't have to protect the car from attackers today, but we have to protect them from the attackers in the future. And that's really the future adversaries is the thing that we can't, we can't really determine what they're going to do, what tools are going to be cheap enough for them to use in the future, what tools are even going to exist. So defense in depth is a real, real big thing. And we really need to be scalable over the air updates is a really big part of the security model that they're moving forward. So if we do have a problem or we did use these, the, the, the bad password on a uh, certificate, how can we update it after the fact? You know, there really wasn't a very good solution recent, until until recently on a lot of uh, manufacturers. So that's something that we're working towards. Yeah, it's really encouraging to hear like there's so much progress, and I think things like car, um, uh, like the car hacking village, are, are hugely important for not only like raising awareness around the fact that cars are computers, mm -hmm. um, and that there are a lot of fun to study the cybersecurity properties of them and get into this field. Um, Robert, you know, obviously you've you've played a seminal role in Car Hacking Village and uh, things like it. Can you tell us a little bit about Car Hacking Village? How did you get it started and how has it evolved over the, the past couple of years? Yeah, so uh, fortuitously, the Car Hacking Village started in 2015, which is the same year that Charlie and Chris released their Jeep, their infamous Jeep hack. So like that was our first year. We I tried to do it the year before. They just didn't have any room. Um, and DEFCON didn't have any room in the space that they had. So they just didn't have room for a bunch of cars. Like, you know, we needed about 10,000 square feet, but we only got like three. Um, and so they just didn't have a lot of room. So we were like, okay, we're moving to a new place. Let's set you up there. So we, we started at Bally's um, that year. And I started, you know, the idea was simple. You know, I'd been working car hacking for a long time. I really liked DEFCON. 
I and I love the villages at DEFCON, so why not combine them? It just seemed like a pretty obvious thing. So I just needed help. So being in this space and in that particular business, I just called up all of the people that I knew that were car hackers at the time or were interested in cybersecurity, which were very few. You know, there wasn't a lot, you know, it was still kind of in its infancy, the whole concept. And this is 2015, only six years now ago. So, um, you know, I thought, hey, this is a good good idea. Let's marry these two things together. Uh, little did I know, I'd never get to see another DEF CON again, because now you're doing the, the village. You just, you can't go visit DEF CON anymore, but that's too bad. Um, so, yeah, we started up, uh, you know, the car hacking village. At the time, uh, the car hackers handbook was just coming out. So I, I talked to... Um, Craig Smith, I said, hey, you want to help me with this? And I talked to a, one of our sponsors, uh, Kirsten. Um, she helped us out to, to acquire the, the money that we'd need to get all the people and cars and because we've got a lot of cost renting and things like that. Help us sponsor it, put it all in a space. And then just our job was now content, right? How do we do this? Like, what do we do? How do we do it? Our first time doing a village, just let's Let's have fun. And uh, we've learned a few things over the years. We've uh, The first couple of years, we didn't do a CTF. And everybody's like, why aren't you doing a CTF? I'm like, I don't know. I've never done a CTF. So I didn't know anything about them. I, so I had to help, have other people help me out, uh, bring the CTF online. And then and then we did a CTF and did another one. And then we ha- that's been, probably been our, our main uh, focus over the past few years. Um, it's just, you know, gamifying the hacking itself. Um and, you know, adding the content and all the content sort of ties in with the CTF as well. And just having fun with it. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, um, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, how, how do people get involved with the Car Hacking Village uh, once we're, you know, well, I guess we can do it virtually now, but um, once we're sort of all back in person when the world comes well, back together. Well, this year we actually are going to be in person. I know it sounds crazy the, to, to do that, but um, we're going to... Um, you know, we don't know where DEFCON where DEFCON's going to go. In fact, we have a meeting this weekend to actually discuss it with DEFCON and all the groups. All the other villages are going to discuss it. But we've already made a stance in uh, that we're going to do a small outdoor event. I know in the middle of August in Vegas, um, we'll use portable air conditioners, um, outdoor event in Vegas this year. So we will be in person. Um Vaccinated people only. I'll be one of them. Uh, but we'll we'll try to get put our foot back in the pool a little bit and see how it works out. And because we can be outdoors mainly with with cars and stuff like that, I feel like we can probably practice very safe, uh, um, uh, you know, meetings. And so we'll have a hybrid. You know, get the pun right a little bit. The hybrid conference. So we still will be virtual and uh, in person. And so if they want to get involved, you know, check out carhackingvillage.com. Um, we're going to be posting the news soon and we'll have ticket sales. Uh, so, you know, people can buy access if, if we're not part of DEF, if DEFCON isn't actually going to be, if it's going to be virtual or not, we're not sure yet. But if it's not virtual, we have a space and we're going to move full steam ahead. Now, we also will be virtual, so we'll be a hybrid event. And what we did last year was actually, it was pretty fun. We had, we invented a whole new platform and built a new platform up from scratch to essentially allow people to access devices that we put, like you could SSH into this device that's plugged into a CAN bus on a live vehicle and put a bunch of cameras on it and streamed that and just gave people some tasks and targets and, and all the resources that they would hopefully need in order to hack a, a, a vehicle. And so you'll still be able to do it no matter where you are in the world. It was really actually quite fun 
because we had people from all over the world joining us uh, to do the Karking Village. So. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to it and I'm sure Matt is as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Robert, Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the show. This was awesome. And I hope to have you on again very soon. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.